Hey everybody, Curtis here. Good news, it's midterm review time. This week on The Backdrop. Welcome to The Backdrop. So glad you're joining me this week. We're about at the halfway point of the book of Jeremiah. If not based on page numbers, then certainly because there is a big shift in the book that's about to come in the coming chapters. And so I thought this week we might spend some time looking back over the first half of this book that we've been making our way through. What are some of the major themes and ideas that come out when we look at the first half of the book of Jeremiah as a whole? What are some of the issues that we've maybe mentioned but haven't spent a ton of time on thus far, but that are important for our understanding of this book? So that's what we're going to do this week, and we'll return next week to dissecting specific chapters. I have seven things that we will spend just a couple minutes on each in this episode, and they fall into two main categories. One group, which we'll start with, has to do with the fundamental prophetic theme of deconstruction and reconstruction, of death and rebirth. The other group, which we will end with, has to do with who God is. As always with these episodes, I am indebted to the Old Testament scholars John Golden Gay, Christopher Wright, and Walter Brueggemann uh, for many of these points. Brueggemann, in particular, has a collection of essays on Jeremiah called Like Fire in the Bones that I'm shamelessly ripping off for some of these points here. So with all that said, let's dive in. First, prophets like Jeremiah are inevitably rejected by their societies. This is something Jesus points out when he too is rejected by his society. But one of the main reasons for this phenomenon is that a key part of the prophetic task is to dismiss in judgment that which the society values. Why is a key part of the prophetic task to confront and judge what society values? Because those values are misaligned with what God values. The prophet's job is to call people back to God, not just in terms of their individual holiness, but by pointing out the injustice and idolatry that characterizes the society as a whole. And this is not some vague, abstract notion of turn to God. The prophets have specific criticisms and specific corrections in mind. You as a society value this, but you should value that. When a society has wandered away from God to the point that it needs a prophet to call it back, that is a consequence of the values having gone wrong. And so those values need to be confronted judged, dismissed, so that they can be replaced with the things that God values. And the society can be rebuilt around those new values, or maybe I should say old, old values. And this then is dangerous because judging and dismissing the things a society values is a great way to get yourself in trouble. Like you really couldn't pick a better way to get yourself into trouble. Dismissing what a society values is what gets you assassinated for leading a strike of garbage workers asking for better working conditions or for advocating for LGBTQ rights. And that is exactly what we see in Jeremiah. We've talked about a lot of those specifics over the weeks, but it's worth reflecting on the broader theme. We should, as followers of Jesus, interrogate the values of our society too. Some of those values will be aligned with God's vision for justice. Some of them clearly won't. Some will up to a point. Like, for example, I think individual freedom is very much aligned with God's vision for the world, just not if it's taken to the extreme of then not caring about how your freedom affects the rest of the world. A society that produces people who will refuse to wear masks in stores on some principle of individual freedom 
has values that need to be confronted. What other values of our society need to be dismissed in judgment? I'd add consumerism to that list and glorification of the military and military power, which is fundamentally idolatrous, putting our trust in weapons and soldiers to protect us rather than God. Again, not the same thing as saying the military is bad or buying stuff is bad, but those things can be emphasized to the point of becoming values that oppose the values of Jesus. And the reason the prophet is concerned with this is that the prophet knows that people become what they worship. When the values of society lead them away from God and towards idols, the society follows and becomes more and more like those values and idols. Now, the other side of this, however, is positive. The prophet sees misaligned values that need to be confronted and dismissed, but the prophet also sees hidden possibilities for the society to move towards hope. The places where people have given up on justice and just say, well, that's the way it is, always has been, always will be. It's not what God would want, sure, but what are you going to do? But the prophet can see the hope for a new, rebuilt future. When the values are realigned and the society follows into a place of justice, what hope can we see as followers of Jesus that isn't seen by others? How can we envision a society that mirrors the goodness and justice of God, possibilities that might seem impossible to the rest? This is related closely to our second theme, that the social pain and injustice of the society are not inevitable. The social pain and injustice are based on certain social structures and relationships that can be transformed. The prophet recognizes that the status quo does not need to be the status quo, that things could be different. The prophet says, yes, this is how kings currently operate, but they don't have to operate that way. The prophet says, yes, this is how the priests currently perform their duties, but it doesn't have to be that way. The prophet says, yes, this is how employers and employees normally relate to one another, but it doesn't have to be that way. The prophet says, yes, this is how different races usually relate, but it doesn't have to be that way. Might we be people who imagine different social relationships, who build communities, who follow Jesus together, that give life to an alternate, transformed reality? Might we be people who see the pain and injustice of our society and see it not as inevitable, but able to be transformed through the power of our God? A politics, as we have said before on this podcast, that rests on clear theological grounds based on who God is and what God has said about justice, rather than partisan ideas of what is liberal or conservative. Third, Jeremiah writes a lot of his prophetic announcements in poetry. There's a mixture of the poetic and prose in the book. Many scholars connect the prose sections of Jeremiah to a later editor who was compiling Jeremiah's prophecies into a book for those in exile and who supplemented and arranged things to make them more understandable. You can also look at the poetic as the original spoken words that Jeremiah performed, so to speak, before the people, and that the prose aspects were part of the writing down of what was originally spoken. Maybe by Jeremiah, maybe by Jeremiah's scribe and assistant Baruch, who shows up later in the book. Or maybe Jeremiah just sometimes didn't feel like doing the creative work of writing poetry and just wanted to crank out some paragraphs. Who knows? In any event, Brueggemann argues that because of the deeply confrontational work that Jeremiah is doing, of confronting and reorienting the values that Jeremiah's society rested on, that the poetic form is actually necessary. Poetry 
which is designed to help us see reality in new, different, surprising ways, is a great match for what the prophet is trying to do. Using images and metaphors that shock, unsettle, disturb, surprise, are sometimes the only way to help reorient people towards what is actually reality, when the status quo has seduced them to believe that something else is reality, that ungods are actually gods, that idols aren't empty, that injustice is inevitable. The prophet uses the poetic to break through that shell of fake reality and to expose what is truly real in all its horror and hope. It's why Jesus sometimes spoke in parables. It's why Jeremiah speaks in poetry. Fourth thing, again related to the last, Jeremiah is operating at a time when some of the cherished truths of his society are coming crashing down. The temple will protect us. God has given us this land. We are the special chosen people of God. When those kinds of fundamental truths are being called into question, sometimes exposed to be lies, it causes profound disorientation in a society. This is always true. When the foundations on which a society is built crumble, it is devastating and confusing and disorienting. We are living in a time when many are saying, especially white men are being confronted with a crumbling understanding of who they are and where they fit in society. Traditional ideas of masculinity are being called into question. The role of men in the family, the world, the workforce are being turned upside down. The place of privilege and power that white men are used to occupying, literally by divine right, is being shown to be a symptom of oppressive structures, not godly ones. This is one of many, not the only, examples of how this is happening currently, by the way, but it's a helpful example. And we are seeing some of the backlash against this change in our society currently. Cherished assumed truths get called into question in Jeremiah, both by the prophet himself and by the geopolitical events that the nation is being confronted with. And it is similarly disorienting in Jeremiah's day. The prophet disorients. And the prophet points out the ways that reality itself is pushing through and disorienting. The prophet shows where uncreation is happening and needs to happen. There are certain assumed and cherished truths, certain values, as we said before, that need to be dismantled because they don't align with God's values. They don't align with what is actually true. And there are certain cherished truths and values that just are being dismantled because that's what happens sometimes in history. Things change. And this can feel, and we've looked at examples in Jeremiah where this is spoken of, it can feel as if the world is coming undone, as if creation itself is being undone, reversed, as if God is in the process of uncreating. But here's the thing that the prophet knows. Our God is the creator. Uncreation must occur, but we have hope because God is always creating on the other side. Uncreation is happening, will happen. It might seem disorienting, but we as followers of Jesus can find our orientation again, always, because recreation is coming on the other side. The backlash we see in certain parts of our society to the disruption and disorientation and uncreation of cherished and assumed truths and values that backlash is evidence of our not having trusted God in the first place. Not simply because some of those values are opposed to God's values and need to be uncreated, but because our fear at the uncreation shows that we don't actually believe, that is, trust, 
that God will engage in recreation. We believe that the uncreation is the end. But that is a fundamental truth about God that the prophet knows, that the follower of Jesus knows. Our God is the creator. Disorientation is temporary. It's painful, but it's temporary. It is always followed by recreation on the other side. A remnant that more faithfully reflects the goodness and justice of God. And that leads us to our second group of ideas from Jeremiah, the ones that speak to who God is. The first is the one we just mentioned. God is the creator. God uncreates, yes, but God also creates. Put another way, the God who is bringing death in the book of Jeremiah is the same God who brings life. Some scholars have found Jeremiah to be unreadable because of the whiplash nature of the ideas. You go from hope to destruction to fear to judgment to future and back again. It is a fundamental flaw in modern biblical scholarship, by which I mean scholarship that comes out of modernity as opposed to post-modernity. Generally speaking, this is scholarship that was done in the 19th and 20th centuries, but that's an oversimplification for sure. But it's a fundamental flaw in modern biblical scholarship to obsess over making things neat and tidy. One of the outworkings of this is that instead of taking books of the Bible as works of intentional, complicated ideas, they try to break out each idea to a different source. One of the most famous examples of this is that modern scholars basically dissected the Torah into sometimes four, sometimes more sources. Scholars just divided up different chapters, books, sometimes individual verses, from the first five books of the Old Testament and categorized them as coming from four different sources that were then smushed together by a later editor. The four sources were J, coming from the German way of transliterating Yahweh, which used the name Yahweh for God and was mostly concerned with Judah. E for Elohim, which was more concerned with Israel and used the name Elohim for God. P, meaning the priestly source, which was concerned with issues of sacrifice and holiness and such. And then D, meaning Deuteronomistic source, which dealt with issues of the law and often wrote in like a sermon style, which was how most of the book of Deuteronomy is. So J, E, P, D, different sources from totally different perspectives that originally held opposing views about God and Israel, but were then smashed together by an editor who just ignored all the opposing ideas. This concept, and sometimes even more sources are proposed and sometimes fewer, but it was hugely influential in biblical scholarship. And something similar is done by some scholars of Jeremiah. Poetry is one source, prose another, history parts a third, judgment was from Jeremiah, but hope is from a later writer in the exiled community in Babylon. Maybe the same writers who wrote the D source from the Torah also wrote parts of Jeremiah because Jeremiah's words and Deuteronomy's words are so similar at certain points. But here's the thing. The basic assumption of this sort of scholarship is that the biblical authors couldn't have two conflicting ideas. So anytime there is tension between one style of writing and another, or one idea and another, oh, clearly different sources there. How this applies to Jeremiah is that this strain of scholarship sees the predictions of doom and destruction, which then move right into predictions of hope on the other side and say, oh, no, 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 clearly a later editor got uncomfortable with all the doom and gloom and inserted that hope because there's no way those two opposing ideas could have come from the same place. I make fun of this a lot because it's completely idiotic. I want to ask these scholars if they've ever met, you know, a human being ever in their lives because humans have competing thoughts 
constantly, all the time. It would be bizarre if the Bible didn't show competing ideas and tension between different themes and values, because that's how life actually is. That is reality. And so the scholarship that focuses on these issues, I find absurd and bizarre and divorced from reality in a really myopic kind of way. But even beyond that, I bring this up because scholarship like that, more often than not, completely misses the point. (laughs) The whole point in a book like Jeremiah is that God is bringing death and God will bring life, that they are the same God. If you take one of those ideas and without the other, you are missing the point of the book. That the destruction is not evidence of God having changed or God having lost power. It is evidence of God's power. And that God is doing precisely the things that God has always done. God is uncreating and recreating. God is bringing life out of death. God is raising up a faithful remnant to continue on the whole plan that God had been pursuing from the beginning of creation. The contrasts and juxtapositions of styles and themes and ideas in Jeremiah is one of the main points of Jeremiah. God brings death, but God brings life on the other side. Both are true. And then finally, there is a theme in Jeremiah of God choosing the exiled over those who remain. We saw this in recent weeks. The good figs are those who are sent to exile. The bad figs are those who remain in the land. This is precisely the opposite of what people would expect, though. The good figs surely are those who remain in the promised land, right? But Brueggemann makes the point that this is actually right in line with a broader theme in Scripture of God choosing the marginalized over the established, the weak over the powerful, the younger brother or even women over the older brother. The first will be last, Jesus says, and the last will be first. If you want to be the greatest, you must become the least and servant to all. The rich find it unbelievably hard to enter the kingdom of heaven. This simply shows up too much in the Bible, not to be paid attention to. The prophet, like Jeremiah, sees this as a fundamental truth about God, that God will side with the marginalized and the oppressed. Why? What's wrong with those in power? Surely God isn't against those who have money simply because they have money. Here's what I think is going on. When there are people who are marginalized and oppressed, when people like that exist, it necessarily means that the society is unjust. You don't get marginalized people in a society that is animated by the values of Jesus. They wouldn't exist. They wouldn't be marginalized. And so God sides with the marginalized against the forces of the status quo, against the powerful, because the status quo is by definition an unjust one. If it weren't unjust, there would be no marginalized for God to side with. And so it is not that the powerful or the established are necessarily evil. It's that they are benefiting from a status quo that is unjust. And therefore, it is all the harder for them to recognize the reality that the prophets are bringing. They don't see it, or at least it is harder for them to see it. And that is why we see the powerful reacting violently against the hard, disorienting truths of the prophets. They don't want to be disoriented. There is a constant warning in the Bible to those with privilege, power, money, watch out. By the very nature of your being benefited by the status quo, you are in danger of rejecting the word of God when it challenges the status quo. So listen to that constant warning of the last being first, of God choosing the least, the younger, the weak, because God is not like 
the status quo. God is against the status quo. And that is the dangerous message brought by prophets like Jeremiah. And that is where we will end for today. I know it was a little different as an episode this week, but I hope it was helpful to pause and bring back to mind some of the broader themes that we've come across in the pages of Jeremiah so far. I hope you will join us this Sunday for worship, 9 a.m. Pacific time. You can find a link on our website. And good news, we are turning the corner this weekend towards hope. At least for a couple weeks, that is. (laughs) Thanks for listening to The Backdrop. You can find a few questions for reflection and discussion on our website. And until next time, have a great week. Bye. Bye.